HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Learn more and try a free sample at wildakpollock.com. Have you heard? It's party time. Monday, December 3rd is Winter in the Garden, Heritage Radio Network's second annual year-end gala at the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Join HRN's staff, hosts, members, and some very talented chefs and bartenders for a delicious evening that will kick off the holiday season and support our end-of-year fundraising drive. The evening will begin with a VIP hour, complete with bubbles and oysters. Then, all of our guests will work their way around two spacious rooms filled with food stations and bars, sampling fare from some of our favorite chefs. Sip on your choice of cocktails, beer, wine, sake, and cider while bidding on exclusive silent auction items. 2019 is our 10th anniversary. So, whether you've been a member since Roberta's first opened, or if you just discovered your new favorite food podcast, please consider supporting us with a ticket purchase so we can start the year on solid ground. We'd love to see you at the Garden. So join us on December 3rd. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. scared me with that one, man. (laughs) Welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights, and we're going to have some serious insights into the food industry. Today, we have a really uh, fantastic uh, panel, actually. We're having a little panel discussion. Um, We have Rachel Dreskin, who is the U.S. Executive Director at Compassion and World Farming. Um, Rachel has served as the organization's head of food business, where she oversaw the growth and development of the organization's corporate engagement program. And our other uh, guest is um, Sarah Burnett. Let me get down to your email. There you go. And Sarah is the director of wellness and food policy at Panera. Uh, She helps to ensure that Panera puts food on plates that is good for the guests, the environment, and our communities. And in her 13-plus years at Panera, Sarah has been deeply involved in work ranging from the conversion to raised without antibiotics chicken to the uh, recent clean food commitment. Ladies, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you for having. Thank you for having us. Well, it's kind of exciting. Um, uh, you know, it was it was kind of like uh, setting up sort of the Treaty of Versailles to get everybody on the same page. What with me forgetting my phone dates and whatnot, and you know, you guys having to deal with your own uh, internal mechanics of how you do interviews. But um, here we are, and and it's an exciting moment. I, I have to say that um, uh, that it's. Uh, Panera has just, I just read that fantastic piece in the New Yorker magazine this morning, actually. Um, For people who haven't seen it yet, there is a profile of the uh, founder of Panera who talks about how, uh, you know, our capitalist system has essentially brought us to the Donald Trump era. It was a great article. You guys must have been thrilled when that came out. Thank you. Yeah, very exciting. Very exciting. Absolutely. Okay. So Sarah, let's start with you because let's start because what we're going to talk about is how sort of Panera has um, willingly or or knowingly or unknowingly become kind of the leader of one of the leaders of the pack of uh, moving a major foods business towards a more sustainable profile. So let's start by saying how many you have how many outlets, how many Panera uh, grills or Panera bread grills are there in the United States? Sure. We have um, just a little over 2,100 bakery cafes Jiminy um, here in the U.S. and just a handful in Canada as well. <clears throat> Incredible. And all of them are have adopted <clears throat> excuse me, these new guidelines that you guys have been developing over the course of, what, the last uh, 10 or 12 years? That's as long as you've been working there, Sarah? Yeah, we have. We, we started in 2004 with Braised Without Anabetic Chicken, mm-hmm. and we've expanded from there and... and been pretty busy. Yeah, <laughs> you've been pretty busy. Well, it's you know what I want to get out in this program is I I want to show people that that changing the supply chain for a company like yours is is not an insignificant uh, task to attack. Right? It's it's a very big. Uh, unwieldy ship that you uh, are steering, that it has many, many moving parts. Um, one of the things on your well on your website that I thought was interesting is that you offer an annual animal welfare reporting um, page where it tells people how you guys are doing. Um, is that what you first started when you first began working with Panera, Sarah? Was that your work or was that already something that they were engaged with? No, we, we actually started that just a few years ago. Um, I believe our first one was in 2015, uh-huh. and that really came out of this idea that we we feel like it's really great to make forward-looking commitments. They right. help inspire others. They help us um, kind of create energy in the industry to change. However, um, they're not always transparent, so it's great to say I'm going to be better by 2025, for example. <laughs> yeah. But are you doing anything today? And that's what people really want to know. Right. And so we said, hey, let's be transparent on our journeys. Let's not hold back any information. We're not perfect just yet. We're never going to be perfect. So let's talk about our journey as past. Right. Let me fix my headphones. I'm getting blasted out here. Um, and um, I wanted to ask you, Rachel, how did you guys engage with Panera? Like, what was your pitch? How did you guys get them, you know, how did you come together, as it were? Yeah, so we've been working with Panera for several years now, and we started working with them back in, uh, I think it was 2014, if I remember correctly, Sarah. But to be totally honest, our sell was not needed for Panera. And in a lot of the cases, when we work with food companies, um, that's not necessary. Uh-huh. Uh, I think companies are, on a whole, really 
to address animal wealth and recognize that it's a priority for the business. And that's certainly where Panera was. And Panera has really been um, a leader in this regard. But when we started working together, they were looking to make um, a um, statement around the progress that they had made on animal welfare. And I really specifically remember one of the pieces being disclosure on what percentage of the supply chain um, they had converted to being cage free. And this was way before the wave of cage free commitment had come out in the U.S. And um, we kind of came into the process, and I was immediately very impressed by this this, this disclosure, this desire mm-hmm. to disclose, uh, really being a test of their commitment to transparency. Um, that was something that not a lot of other companies were, were doing at that point in time. Right. And and um, so, Sarah, what, why don't you describe some of the things besides the um, going antibiotic-free in 2004... Uh, which is certainly, was that when it was, 2004? That's very forward-thinking of you. That was when we started our journey. Uh-huh. That's when we put our first chicken product out in the market. Uh-huh. And very interesting. And we transitioned over time, geez, over the next several years, all of our chicken. And then we actually just finished up pork in 2015. Uh-huh. So you have antibiotic-free pork, antibiotic-free chicken. So that means all your bacon, for instance. I'm not. I don't imagine that you're selling a lot of pork loins there. So basically, you're talking about your bacon, right? Yeah, bacon, ham, breakfast sandwich. Right. We do have one holdout. So that's a lot. Our our artisan salami. We're working on still. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, we've converted all of that for our sandwiches and salads, and it um, took multiple years. It, it's not an easy journey. It's not a hey, I just want to buy this tomorrow. It actually takes several years to transition supply chains. Yeah, well, that's what I want. I want people to understand what that, uh, what that transition is. So can you take us sort of through the steps of how you identify suppliers that you want to work with? Or, uh, or maybe the answer is uh, that more like, well, I have these suppliers and I'm going to ask them to make these changes for me. What, sort of which comes first, the chicken or the egg in that sense? Yeah, um, I think it depends on the supply chain. But m- at a high level, this is how it works. Okay. First, we start out with taste. We always do. We're a restaurant company. It has to taste great. Right. And people always find it fascinating. Our trip down raised with antibiotic chickens actually started with a taste test. Really? So we had a panel of like 30 products, and one happened to be raised without antibiotic. It won hands down. Best tasting product. Huh. And we said, we really want this product. We said, who could create this product? And it was really a learning process for us to actually then study supply chains of multiple suppliers to see who could actually make that product um, with those standards. And that process still goes on today of, one, you know, we start out with the product spec of saying, hey, the chicken should look and taste like this. Mm -hmm. But it also is multiple Mm -hmm. layers of, Okay, how do you handle, um, how, how do you cook that actually, how do you actually transport that chicken to the factory? Uh, what uh, medicines are you giving that uh, bird? What's the quality of that bird's life? So we create standards for the entire supply chain, yeah. and we have to figure out, you know, is the partner able to do all of those steps, not just put the right product on the, on the plate? 
Right. And, and uh, Rachel, for the point of view of compassionate world farming, um, what, how do you steer, how do you help companies achieve those goals? Do you guys have, uh, can you recommend suppliers or do you have protocols that you suggest to them that that's what they should look for with their suppliers? How do you guys contribute to that process? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. <clears throat> and it's something that, you know, really comes after kind of this, there's a lot of deep engagement that usually goes on with a food company to even get to that point, which I just want to touch on um, really quickly. But like Sarah was saying, being even get to the point where you're saying you're going to commit to a complete supply chain conversion of, you know, moving to an entirely cage-free supply chain, an entirely higher welfare broiler supply chain by X state is really a critical part of this. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes there on kind of like gaining uh, the, the internal buy-in, understanding you know, why is this really important to our, our business? Why is this in the best interest of our business? Right. You know, is, is it, um, you know, looking at if there are supply chain challenges and there's financial implications, but also thinking like, what is if we don't do this? We don't address this and make this change. So um, I think that's, that's a really part, critical part of the journey for, for any food looking to this, making those really clear commitments, like Sarah was saying, right. um, with a timeline. And once we have that, then the work on supply chain conversion actually begins. And I think it's, it's really essential that um, groups like Compassion Rural Farming are supportive and engaged and kind of can serve in a facilitator role as companies look to, to transition. Uh-huh. And um, it can oftentimes involve um, things like road mapping supply chains going on. Um, a couple of years ago, we did a um, supplier visit with, with Panera. We actually went to a couple of different spots and looked at what a higher wealth look like compared to a conventional farm. We're really looking at those, those, those practices um, in person. There's nothing that really takes the place of that. Just kind of back to really truly understanding exactly what's going on in the supply chain and making a decision that's in best alignment with um, a company's expectations and consumer expectations. Uh-huh. Hmm. Um, I'm just sending you a note, actually, Rachel, because your sound quality is deteriorating. We might have to take a moment. Matt, what do you think? Does it sound better to you? Sarah, how well are you able to hear Rachel? Because it's like in and out for me. Cuts in and out a little bit. Yeah, not great. We might have to take oh. a quick break and call you back. Okay, sure. Uh, All right. Here, I'll pick up with Rachel right now. Okay. All right, he's going to call you, and we'll just make that quick transition. Sorry to listeners, you know, this internal radio business, we all try to pretend that it doesn't happen. But actually, it does happen, and, and I would rather have good sound quality um, and interrupt the show than not have good sound quality because what you're saying is so interesting and it's, it's a little bit hard to follow. So Sarah, let me, while um, Matt is doing that, let me, um, let me collect, connect with you a little bit about how um, once you have identified new suppliers or, or, or had your old suppliers um, 
transition to a model that you find acceptable. How do you, how are you able to then verify your compliance? I know a lot of people would be curious about that. In fact, when I was describing this program earlier today, you know, my friend said, well, how do they know that they're, that they're, they're getting what they say that, that, that the farmer says that they're, they're doing what the person says. And I, you know, I know with Nyman Ranch, for example, they have compliance officers who visit the farms four to six times a year. How do you guys manage that? Cause you have a much, much bigger supply chain, for example, than, you know, than the average restaurant. I mean, with 2,100 outlets and counting, uh, that's a lot of suppliers. So, so yeah. how do you guys manage that? Yeah, it, it actually is a very process. And so there's a couple key steps to it. Uh-huh. One is actually on-site visits right. from our sourcing team as well as our quality assurance team. Right. Um, going through those. The second piece is documentation, you know, reviewing. Do they have animal welfare standards? How are they training? What is the training document for their farmer teams and things? Right. Say, hang on but for I a think second because this sounds just awful. Okay. I'm like, I'm freaking out in here, Matt. I'm freaking out. We're getting like an echo and it just sounds bad. Can you fix that? Brother man? Oh, because it's, it's Rachel, what's up? sound quality sucks. Yeah, I know, but that's not a thing okay. that I can do anything about. Oh, um, I can okay. put Rachel back on. We'll see how she is now. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Okay. We'll keep going. We'll see what, you know, do our best. Sorry All about right. this. I apologize to both of you. It's a function of having two people on the line. I should have known that this would happen, but anyway, I didn't. So, um, so Sarah, to go on with you for just a second, you guys now, for instance, with the antibiotic-free chicken, the antibiotic-free pork, you have grass-finished beef. These products cost a lot more. So is it because you are growing to scale, to a huge scale, that you can afford to, you know, not jack your prices up into the stratosphere? I mean, I know, for instance, I just bought a really nice chicken yesterday, and it was $22, you know, for a three-pound chicken. So obviously, you can't do that. Um, and, and I can't do that too regularly myself, to be honest. <laughs> but um, how, do you, how do you manage those? Is this just all about economy of scale? Yes and no. Okay. So the first thing I would say is just finishing up my answer on the last one. Yeah, sorry about that. You sound much better. We also have a third-party audit of all of our suppliers annually. Mm -hmm. And it's everything from literally going to the feed mill and making sure that they're segregating our feed. It's not getting antibiotics put in it, et cetera, Um, to the farms, to the production plant, through harvesting, et cetera, to make sure our product's segregated and we're really getting what we're what we think we're getting right um, but and I say in terms of cost mm-hmm. the uh, way we've looked at this always is that these are long-term investments mm. and so sometimes we take an upfront um, hit so for example chicken when we bought it in 2004 yeah was double the cost uh, of conventional at the time Wow we invested in that we absorbed the majority of that cost. Wow. Knowing that, um, basic rules of supply and demand, if we could continue to grow uh, demand for that by really talking to consumers about it, getting mm-hmm. them excited about the product, et cetera, we would be able to have those costs naturally come down over an extended period of time. Oh, I see. And Very we've seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and we use that model as we source our other proteins as well, saying, yeah, we're going to have to take some of that cost. No doubt about it, we pass on some costs to the consumers, mm-hmm. 
Um, but a lot of it is, again, thinking about this as a long-term investment rather than, hey, how is it going to impact my bottom line this quarter? Right. Which was kind of the thrust of the article in The New Yorker today um, with your founder, um, what is it, Ron Sayich? Is that how you say it? Ron Shake. Shake. Thank you. Um, because what he was saying is that you, you can't just focus on those short-term profits. You have to think of a business as a long-term plan. And he's, de- he's apparently gone on to develop some other ways for people to raise money, uh, venture capital, you know, that will allow them to, you know, invest in the long haul kind of stuff. I mean, it was a very interesting piece on many levels because I think for a lot of companies, the whole, the kind of extractive methodology of capitalism is, is proving to have limits, as it turns out, you can't just grow exponentially and extract all of these products, whether it's, you know, feed or water or antibiotics or, you know, in the, at least in the food business or, or really in any business and not expect to come up against a brick wall of either a dwindling supply or some other thing that's going to, you know, prevent you from continuing to grow. So what I wanted to ask um, Rachel, though, now that we have her back on the phone is um, when you engaged with, you know, a company like Panera, and I know you guys have done work with other chain, you know, quick service chains like that. um, Do you uh, do do you have I know that Panera is willing to work with other companies and I wondered how much Mm -hmm. you facilitate between companies like, say, a Panera or a McDonald's or, uh, you know, some other, like Chick-fil-A, for example, they were very early adopters of antibiotic-free poultry. Um, Do you guys work all amongst yourselves? And and CIWF is what brings that, you know, is the glue that binds? Yeah, Katie, we think it's really important to work across the entire supply chain. Mm. Um, Because what we have are we have leaders, Um, And Panera is an example of a company who has really established themselves as a leader um, in many of these areas. But also, this is something that, like what Sarah was saying, in order to achieve economies of scale, we need to make sure that we are moving the the food industry with us. So that involves working with players across the industry. And we see this really critical to um, work with, with not just companies who, not the Panera Breads of the world, but right. really all, all different kinds of companies, quick service restaurants, but also other purchasers like uh, retailers and manufacturers, um, and also working with, with producers uh-huh. and genetics companies, uh, certifications as well, to really bring everyone together and talk about, do we have a common goal? Uh, because we have um, assessed that how we're, how we're raising animals for food uh, right now is not acceptable. It's, it's not in alignment what, what consumers are expecting. Um, so we then decide, okay, we're going to move towards to something like an entirely cage-free supply, supply chain. Um, it, it really is in our advantage to make sure that we have almost the entire food industry on board with that. And now we have, there are about 200 food companies who have made commitments um, now to cage-free eggs. Mm-hmm. And now we have over 100 companies who have committed to moving to higher welfare broiler supply chain where the birds don't suffer um, inherently as a result of their, of their genetics. And we oftentimes will bring together all of these players in a, in a forum. And to have that kind of closed-door, pre-competitive dialogue um, to talk through um, what is that common goal? And then how do we how do we learn from each other? How do we talk through 
the challenges and how do we start road mapping the supply? Right. That's I, I want to I want to come back to that question in just a second. We're going to take a quick sponsor drop um, because for once in my life I actually remembered to do this. Thank you very much. And so you will be patient and stay on the line with me whilst Matt runs a, a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Rachel Dreskin from Compassion in World Farming and Sarah Burnett from Panera Bread. Uh, we're talking about changing your supply chain and what those challenges are. So stay tuned. We got a lot more to talk about. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Wild Alaska Pollock is incredibly delicious, highly nutritious, and perpetually sustainable. Among the last frontier's many natural wonders, Wild Alaska Pollock just might be the state's best kept secret. This cousin to cod has lean, snowy white meat, delicate texture, and a mild flavor that makes it extremely versatile and tasty. Only pollock caught in Alaskan waters by U.S. fishermen can be labeled Wild Alaska Pollock. Unlike other pollock products, Wild Alaska Pollock is filleted and frozen just once within hours of being caught to preserve freshness, flavor, and texture. And now, food service professionals can try Wild Alaska Pollock for free. Request your sample at wildakpollock.com and discover the fish of the future. That's wildakpollock.com. Still, I don't want to go to bed. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking with Panera Bread's uh, Sarah Burnett and with Rachel Dreskin from Compassion in World Farming, one of my favorite uh, NGO organizations. Um, And Rachel, we were just talking about um, sort of how you... Uh, alter a supply chain, sort of like getting a bunch of stakeholders. I hate using these like biz speak words, but I'm afraid we're, we're stuck with them. But, you know, like getting people across a certain sector to all adopt the same, you know, the same idea. So you have 200 restaurant chains, for example, that will all agree, yes, we are going to phase out, you know, gestation crates in the next five years or whatever it is. Um, what, what, let me, I'm going to ask you something about that. And I'm going to ask Sarah um, about that as well. And what I wanted to ask you, Rachel, is what are the biggest challenges on that level? Like, what are the things that you find the most difficult uh, when you want, when you're talking to a company that wants to kind of start changing up its, its you know, how it, how it uh, ac- acquires its product? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, these are really big supply chain uh, yeah. challenges and changes um, that we're working with, with companies on. And I think I mentioned this before, but I was probably breaking up at this at this point. Um, But I I think like one of the biggest challenges with creating these commitments and kind of putting a stake in the ground and saying, okay, we are going to to take this leap and create all of this extra work for ourselves to transition our supply chain 
um, is really about kind of understanding why why this is important to us as a business and getting that buy-in and right. um, really understanding why is this in the, in the best interest. So, and that's like making that statement, we are moving entirely to a higher welfare chicken supply chain by an X date really shows that you are defining clearly where you're headed and that you're holding yourself accountable to that. Mm-hmm. And then the, then the supply chain, the work that actually transitions supply chain actually begins. So a lot of times these commitments are five plus years out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for Panera Bread, um, their commitment in 2015 to go entirely cage-free um, by 2020, there's a commitment to go to higher welfare uh, chicken by 2024. So these are commitments that are five plus years out. Yeah. So that is allows us the time to work through the pieces around availability, around distribution, around the economic implications of that. Right. Um, but it's really important to stress that it's, it's essential to begin nip, mapping out these changes now and talking to suppliers now, in, involving uh, external groups um, like, like Compassionate World Farming who can offer a perspective and kind of facilitate discussion around this to make sure that these changes are done in a, re- a responsible manner and right. that there is transparency throughout the process. Right, right. Well, that, I mean, that leads me to um, something on Sarah's side. Um, On the Panera Bread website, uh, you guys have these, as we mentioned at the top of the show, you have these uh, really great um, sort of updates on how you're doing uh, with your animal welfare protocols and transitioning from, you know, one aspect, you know, say it's cage-free eggs or whatever. I'm not going to, you know, but one of the things that you drilled down on was a report on broilers. Now, broilers... um, have become so big for people who don't know this, but I'm, I'm a total meat geek. So they have now become so big and breast heavy that it's become an animal welfare concern. Right, Rachel? So, uh, there's, there's an issue around altering those genetics. This may or may not be the issue that you're talking about when you, um, say altering welfare conditions for broilers requires a commitment from more of the restaurant industry, but I want you, Sarah, to, to sort of take us through what you guys mean by that. In other words, you're saying, well, we can't buy enough broilers to make that change ourselves. We have to, um, you know, establish some kind of relationship, I'm guessing, with other food chains who are perhaps like-minded. And I wondered if you could just kind of take listeners through a little bit of what that thinking is when you when you recognize that you can't be the only player on this team. You've got to have some other players. You need a shortstop and you need a, you know, a catcher. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't believe no. I just said that. Like, I don't even care about baseball. <laughs> I don't believe I just said that. But anyway, you get my point, right? I so I want I you to talk that. a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, Brotherhands is really interesting because one, we have to wait for the industry who's doing all this research on what's the best breed. What's the best housing conditions that they're right. going to give you good outcomes and uh, result in great animal care? So we're waiting on this research. The industry's um, kind of anxiously waiting as some animal welfare groups and, and experts are figuring that out. Right. So we're relying on that, but we're also relying on everyone else to kind of come along on the journey. The reason is, is I, I buy 40 million approximately pounds of chicken. The majority of that is chicken breast. Right. What's happening in the rest of that bird? Yeah. Uh, we might have to find a home for the rest of that. It's not like we're not going to throw that away. So 
you know, we can absorb so much of that and bring it into things like that. Yeah. But we have to work with partners who, one, are taking the rest of that bird. Right. Um, but two, 40 million is actually not that much compared to how many chickens are actually raised. Right. It's 9 billion. Yeah. So <laughs> all those other chickens, you know, they're coming from these same supply chains. Mm-hmm. And broiler hen health is not just about just the bird itself. It's also how do you care for it? How do you monitor its health? How much space does it have? So if we change ours, you know, maybe our birds end up requiring a little bit more space, great for the animal. Right. That means that I need more hen houses. Who's going to give up their hen houses so that my hens can have more room? Right. You know, it's a big balancing act. Yeah, no, it's huge. And as you said, I want to go back to one thing. One thing you said at the very beginning of that answer, which which had to do with research, and yeah. this is something that I think consumers are really unfamiliar with the concept. Um, first of all, how how heavily manipulated uh, animal genetics are, um, and particularly chickens, and um, and also that there are only four major chicken. Uh, genetic companies in the world, basically. And in the United States, it's really just Tyson. It's Cobb Ventress. I don't think, I doubt you have, I don't know if you buy from other, from other suppliers, but two of them are European and two, I guess two of them are American. Um, but it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta work through those guys. And that's the research part of this. And I, I wondered how, you know, how long does that take, for example, like say you want an animal that's breast doesn't grow to like 10 times its, you know, natural size in six weeks, um, which is what we have now. Um, say you want it one particular way for your particular purposes. Is there, can you guys dictate those kinds of terms in terms of, of uh, getting genetics yeah. companies to do what you want? Uh, not necessarily at the genetic level, uh-huh. but we can do that with our supply. So right. we can say, mm, farmer... I, we want you to grow our bird to X weight. We right. know at that weight, at that age, their health is not impacted. You know, they're standing up, they're walking around, they're able to feed and have normal behaviors. Right. Um, versus someone else who might say, hey, grow that same bird. I want you to grow it in a shorter amount of time to the same weight or to a heavier weight. Mm-hmm. Feed it a lot more food <laughs> and it's going to get really big in a really short period of time. Mm. So we can control things like feed, growth rate through natural practices, but it right. doesn't get us all the way there. Right, right. It's still, it's still definitely a genetics question. Um, it is. From my, just from the research I've done, I don't know if you know that I wrote a book about the meat industry, but I did. I, I did know that. Yeah, probably because I've mentioned it like every single time we've spoken. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, I, I have to make myself look good somehow. I can't just be that I'm sitting in a shipping container in the back of Roberta's restaurant, you know, blabbering on about supply chains. No, I mean, I think this stuff is really, for me, you know, as a geek of, you know, the food industry, I think this stuff is really interesting. I'm not going to keep you much longer, ladies, but um, I wanted to just ask one thing uh, more from uh, from Rachel about... I know that uh, Panera is no longer traded publicly, so I I thought of this question before, but I still think it's an interesting one. How much does CIWF get to engage with shareholders on animal welfare issues and and the like? Is that that Mm. a one way that you guys are able to engage with a company and force change, or or is it different for you? I mean, you don't do that, I guess. 
Is that something you do? Yeah, yes, we do. And I, I do want to also note, too, for your uh, previous question about the genetics, I completely agree with you, Katie, that genetics are really at the crux of the issues yeah. um, with, within the broiler chicken industry. And there's a tremendous amount of work and research going going into that. So I just want to say that I, um, but the, the, we unfortunately have an unintended consequence of selective mm-hmm. selective breeding. Um, for certain qualities and for so-called productivity and efficiency. And we're kind of reevaluating right. how we look, how we now look at that and balancing that with welfare and mm-hmm. certain welfare inputs and outcomes as well. Um, so just wanted to note that. And then back to your question about... Um, shareholders. About shareholders and investors. And the answer yeah. is yes, definitely. We do more and more. And um, Panera, of course, is now a private company, but mm-hmm. most companies we work with are, in fact, publicly traded. And investors are getting increasingly tuned in, into, tuned in into animal welfare and the implications that it has on a business. Right. Uh, for example, we're a partner in a report called the Business Benchmarks on Farm Animal Welfare, mm-hmm. which is an investor-facing report which ranks food companies based on how well they're managing the risk associated with having animals in their supply chains. Oh, yes. And I know that organization. It, yeah. I love, part of the Jeremy Collar Foundation, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes, yes, they were they were one of um, one of the partners in that as well, mm-hmm. and we're really finding that investors are are demanding transparency, <clears throat> and they're hearing that, um, or we're hearing that companies who have commitments, for example, to move to a cage free supply chain, investors want annual updates against that progress. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for some of our progress tracking tools like EggTrack, which highlights how companies are progressing against those cage free commitments. We actually are publishing investor guides along with the report, detailing how investors can use the report and questions that they can ask food companies. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And Sarah, you guys uh, on the other side, although you're no longer traded publicly, um, I'm sure you still have uh, people who are interested in what's going on behind the scenes. Um, and in, as part of your uh, transparency effort, um, you have an educational series going on called Food Interrupted, right? Why don't you give us a quick thumbnail of that before I let you go? Yeah, definitely. Food Interrupted was just, um, it was a project for us and a way for us to talk about food issues that really matter to us Mm -hmm. in a way that wasn't about selling a sandwich. (laughs) We paired up, (laughs) you know, somebody who is an expert, um, whether that be a chef or a food enthusiast, with an everyday hero who's doing something really interesting around a food issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, in... The animal welfare, uh, you, Chris Constantino, who um, is a, a great butcher and chef himself, yeah. um, partnered up with um, a new technology called Herd Dog and talked about um, monitoring animal health um, while cows are out on pasture. So it's really interesting content. And again, it was more for us to kind of talk about food issues and get uh, consumers excited and interested in learning more. Right. Fascinating. I mean, that's such a good tool. I mean, I, anyway, and I know, I know CIWF doesn't have quite the same thing, but they have um, they have great reports in case people want to know that. We're going to let you let you know how to find and access those. Um, and, and then I have one last question for both of you. Um, Compassion and World Farming, you guys engage with government agencies. Um, do you look to um, alter regulations around animal welfare, for example, or transportation issues, which is a hot-button topic that nobody Mm. seems to know anything about, but I think it's sort of coming to the fore. Um, Mm. 
do you guys engage also with that with that side of the world like not just with the business you know b2b but also with government uh agencies we do um Regulation and like legislation is, is really critical mm-hmm. to ensuring that we put the nail in the coffin for some of these the worst of the worst practices in animal agriculture, such as cages and crates. Mm-hmm. And I have to recognize that corporate policy is moving exponentially faster than legislative policy is here in the yeah. United States. But legislation is cap- catching up. Uh, for example, just uh, a couple of a few weeks ago. Um, we were involved in the um, ballot initiative in California, um, which is, of course, the, of course, the fifth, fifth largest economy in the world, right. um, who passed a ban to make the use of cages and crates for laying hens, pigs, and veal calves illegal throughout the state. And not only that, but also it made the sale of any products coming from those systems illegal as well. Yeah. So the writing is, is kind of clearly on the wall that producers, if they, if they want to stay in business, they must address anim- animal welfare right. and at a minimum be where not only food companies have set the bar, but also where some of the largest and most influential states in the country have set a legislative requirement right. as well. Right. And I know, Sarah, that Panera does not lobby, um, but you do show offer yourselves as kind of a, and a, guiding light to other companies? Is that, you're sort of an example? You lead by example? Yeah. I think to Rachel's point, we have found that legislation often moves way way slower than the industry. Right. Right. And we think we have a lot more influence with our voice and with our actions. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't actively lobby, but we do offer ourselves up as a case study. So we work with um, other NGOs and offer up studies of our supply chain to be helpful to others to, to then lobby uh, for legislation. Right. Sounds great. Well, I'm going to let you ladies go. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate this conversation. Um, and let's, let's stay in touch. And, uh, you know, you can tell me more about what great things you're doing uh, on both sides of this conversation at CIWF and with Panera Bread. And, and uh, much obliged to you both for the time out of your day today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. You bet. And thank you to my sponsor and to, um, you know, whatever, to the powers that be that allow me to come into this studio and and record these these conversations. Um, Thanks a lot for listening, folks, and I'll be back next week with another show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.